beautiful song and a beautiful reminder of this lamb. We're going to talk about this lamb today in our passage in Isaiah. Um, Pollen affecting anybody? Y'all forgive me. It's like I've just been sucking it in. I'm chewing on a cough drop up here, and I know that's rude, but man, it's just all, all down in me. You figure out a way to scratch the insides of your ears and your up your nose and down the back of your throat. Let me know because I'm going to invest in that. <laughs> it just, um, oh goodness, uh, yeah. I apologize for this right here and all that's going on in my throat right now. Uh, so so thankful for opportunity just to open God's word uh, with our church family and. Um, and God's word is so important, so essential in our lives, um, and, and it is such a gift that God has given to us. Uh, we have to, we can't, we can't just get used, used to the fact that we have God's word in front of us. You know how incredible that is. The Almighty God of the universe has has spoken and has 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 allowed His words, His very words, to be written down. Not just what somebody thinks God has said but literally what God has said, the very words of God. And we have copies of that. Um, even this week, I was talking with someone and um, just about, um, I can't even remember who it was off the top of my head. It might have been somebody here. I, I apologize, I can't remember. Uh, but, but about um, the Bible and, and another part of our world um, being translated into a language where the people don't have, they can't read the Bible because it's not in their language. And, uh, and some, some very gifted people that know languages or, or have been spending their lives getting the Bible translated in, into this language and are almost done. And, and I was just thinking, man, how, how much do I take for granted my copy of the Word and being able to open it up whenever I want to read it? And, um, and so I just say that to say what a privilege it is to open up God's Word together uh, today. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, help us to take seriously your Word. Father, help us not just to hear it, but help us to do it. Help us to put it into practice in our lives. By your grace, Lord, uh, help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I heard about this, uh, this, this little boy, and he, um, I know I started the sermon out last week that way, but I won't keep doing that, okay? But if you'll let me do that again today. Um, I, I did, I read a story about a little boy, and, and um, his sister had, uh, had a, a life-threatening disease and she needed the blood of someone who had already had that disease and had overcome it and that's the that's the kind of blood that she needed and so uh, it just so happened that her brother um, had had this same illness a couple of years before and she um, and, and so he she needed his blood and the doctor asked the the little boy said would you be willing to uh, give your blood uh, to your sister in a in a blood transfusion, and the little boy got very serious and and he almost started to cry, and then he looked at the doctor and he said he said yes sir he said I'll I'll be willing to do that. So the time came for the procedure and they both went into the room you know and and the little boy um, put his arm out and they stuck an IV in his arm and. He just sat there real still and quiet. He really didn't say much as he watched the blood uh, flow out of his arm. And uh, after, after a few minutes, he, he looked at the doctor and he said, he said, Doctor, he said, when do I die? 
And at that point, the doctor looked at the little boy and he realized why it took him a few minutes to answer, would he be willing to give his blood for his sister? You see, the little boy thought that by giving his blood, he wouldn't get any back. It was all going to be gone. And he had actually made the choice to give up his life for his sister. You know, to suffer for someone is one thing. We've been talking a lot about that suffering in this passage in Isaiah that we've been studying. But to forsake your life for someone else is to, to pay the ultimate price. To give up your life. John the Baptist said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And to take away sin, you must pay the price for sin. If somebody's going to take away sin, that person's got to pay the price for sin. And to pay the price for sin, you've got to die because death is the just penalty for sin. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. That is the right punishment for sin, is death. Today we're going to see that Jesus literally died. He offered himself up to death as a sacrifice for our sin. He made a choice to die for us. Just like that little boy had made a choice to die for his sister. The difference is that that little boy didn't actually have to die. But Jesus did. Jesus actually died breathed his last breath, and his body died. In order to behold the Lamb, as John the Baptist said, we must behold this servant that we find in this passage in Isaiah. If you'll open your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to be in verses 7 through 9 today. If you'll remember that this passage, beginning in chapter 52, verse 13, is broken up into five three-verse sections. Five three-verse sections. And so we're to the... Um, get to the fourth of those three verse sections. We go on three verses at a time. And we learn in uh, verses 13 through 15 of chapter, 50, uh, chapter 52 that Jesus is the wisdom displaying servant. And we learn in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 53 that Jesus is the strength revealing man. And in chapter 53 verses 4 through 6 we learn last week that Jesus is the sin bearing Savior. And today we'll learn that Jesus is the life forsaking Lamb. In verses 7 through 9, Jesus is the life-forsaking Lamb. So let's pick up in verses 7 through 9. Follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Let's stop right there. A few things I want us to see in this passage and uh, as, we, as we walk through But if I could give you just a summary statement, we've been talking about Jesus fitting the picture of this 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 uh, prophecy given of this servant. And here in verses seven through nine, we see that Jesus fits the picture of the perfect Lamb who willingly sacrificed His life for those who deserve death. Jesus fits the picture of the perfect Lamb who willingly sacrificed His life for those who deserve death. Before we dive into each of these verses, verses 7 through 9, 
um, here. What I want to I want to just make sure we, we understand a few things about this passage. Number one, this passage is about Jesus. I've been saying this uh, from the start of this series that this passage is about Jesus. We don't know that until later in, in God's word, but this is actually about Jesus. So much so that we find in the book of Acts a very interesting passage of Scripture. Here in the book of Acts, we find a very interesting passage of Scripture where Philip, and you're probably uh, familiar with the story, Philip is, this is after Jesus has, has come and died and risen and, and ascended back to his father and the church is being started, the gospel is going forward. Uh, Philip is a follower of Jesus and the Lord sends him uh, to talk to this Ethiopian guy. This Ethiopian guy has been in Jerusalem and he's on his way back to Ethiopia. Well, the Spirit of the Lord sends, uh, sends Philip there and as Philip comes alongside this Ethiopian sitting in the chariot, he notices that he's reading. He's reading from the scroll of Isaiah. He's reading from a passage in Isaiah. And he's actually reading from the verses that I just read. He's reading verses 7 and 8 in Isaiah chapter 53. And so Philip says, um, do you understand what you're reading? And this Ethiopian says, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before it shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? That's verses 7 and 8 of what we just read. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? It's an interesting question. There are some that actually say that Isaiah was talking about himself. In this passage, these are people who've studied the Bible for a long time and are what's called Bible scholars. And they say that Isaiah is is referring to himself. Well, we find in the New Testament, the Ethiopian saying, is Isaiah talking about himself or are you talking about someone else? What's the answer that Philip gives? Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Isaiah. No, Jesus. This passage is about Jesus. So much so that we see two of these verses quoted in the New Testament, and specifically it's said that they are about Jesus. Finish that story off. The Ethiopian trusts in this Jesus, trusts in this suffering servant, and he is saved and he is baptized and he takes the gospel back to Ethiopia. And God's plan of spreading the gospel continues to be fulfilled. But this passage is about Jesus. The second thing, before we dive in into the details here, the passage is about Jesus' death. It's about Jesus' death. If you've noticed, we've kind of been building up through the life and suffering and crucifixion, and now we're to the death of Jesus. Remember, those last three verses of chapter 52 were kind of an introduction, a summary of all of chapter 53. Those first three verses of chapter 53 had to do with his birth and, and his, his life. He wasn't much to look at, like a root out of dry ground, and he was rejected by people in his life. The, the next three verses, verses 4 through 6, which we looked at last week, really focused on the suffering and crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, he was pierced for our transgressions, clearly referring to the crucifixion of Jesus. Now we get to these three verses, we're going to see that Jesus, he didn't just suffer on the cross, he literally died. He died on the cross, and we get to the end of this passage in verse 9, we see that he was buried. The reason I emphasize that is there are some who try to deny the resurrection of Jesus, which you can probably guess we'll talk about next week. They try to deny the resurrection of Jesus by saying that Jesus didn't actually die 
on the cross. He just passed out from the pain. But we see in this passage and all throughout Scripture that, no, Jesus actually died. He physically died. He didn't just pass out. We could go into a lot of evidences of why we know that um, that's not true. For one, the Romans were really good at crucifixion. They knew what they were doing, and the purpose of crucifixion was to kill the person. It was capital It was capital punishment, and they were good at it. The soldiers would have been killed if they didn't fulfill their duties in making sure the criminal was killed. And so you better believe the Roman soldiers would have made sure that Jesus was dead or their lives were on the line. You don't wrap up a body that's still breathing and put it in a tomb. And so there's there's... There's all these different um, evidences, but the main one is that that's not what Scripture says. God's Word says that Jesus literally died, and he had to die. It's an attempt to undermine the gospel because if Jesus didn't die, then he didn't take the full punishment for our sin, which, as we've said, is death. Now let's look at these three verses here. Verse number 7, we learn this, that Jesus died as a willing lamb. Jesus died as a willing lamb. A willing lamb. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. I want you to notice uh, two things here. First, I want you to notice that the, the servant's perspective. Remember, the servant is Jesus. This is the one that's being uh, crucified, the one that is being led to the slaughter, the one that is keeping his mouth closed, that is being killed, and then later on the passage is buried. Notice his perspective on what is happening. It's interesting that in verse 4, we kind of had the human perspective. Remember in verse 4, it says, that it says, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So from a human standpoint, the humans looked around at this man suffering and dying and said, man, he must have done something really wrong for God to be treating him like this. They, they thought he was a sinner. In verse 6, we get the Father's divine perspective. In verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And if we go down to verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So the human perspective, Jesus must have done something wrong, and that's why he's dying. From the Father's perspective, it's the Father killing Jesus. The Father placing his wrath upon his Son. But here in verse 7, we get... The divine son's perspective. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. This was a choice that Jesus made. He opened not his mouth. He didn't protest what was happening to him. Jesus was a willing sacrifice. One writer said it this way, Now, however, we stand on a very sacred spot indeed, within the servant's own consciousness, and we see him not caught in a web of events, but masterfully deciding, accepting, and submitting. This isn't Jesus just being torn between the will of the people and the will of his Father, and he has no say in the matter. It's a Trinitarian perspective on the, on the crucifixion here. Jesus was making a choice as the Son. He was willingly going. We notice that We're talking about his perspective. And secondly, notice the servant's willingness. He chose to submit himself to death. This phrase, afflicted, there in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Really, it could be translated this way. And he, for his part, humbled himself. Or as one translation says, he submitted to be struck down. It's not simply that other people were afflicting him and he didn't want that to happen. 
it was he the, the, it's hard to see in our in the Hebrew translated English, but the emphasis is on the sufferer's willingness. He was allowing himself to be afflicted. That would be a great way to translate that. Jesus is allowing himself to be afflicted. He submitted to be struck down. Jesus was submissive, but he wasn't ignorant. He knew exactly what was happening. He knew exactly what was going to happen as he was arrested and and stretched out his hands on the cross. He knew he was going to die, and he knew exactly why he was doing it. He was submissive, but he wasn't ignorant. Notice his refusal to protest. A couple of times in this verse, we see that he opened not his mouth. He opened not his mouth. Uh, have you ever heard the phrase deafening silence? Have you ever heard that phrase before, deafening silence? Uh, I saw this article, a BBC article, and the title was Why Deafening Silence Sounds Different to Other Silence. And uh, the subtitle said this, All silences are not equal. Some seem quieter than others. Let me give you an example of this. When my kids get quiet. That's a different kind of quiet. You know why? Because they're probably doing something they aren't supposed to do. <laughs> That's a quiet that actually grabs my attention. It's a quiet that I hear. I hear the quiet. It stands out compared to other times of quiet, like when they're asleep. The first line of that article said this, A deafening silence is a striking absence of noise so profound that it seems to have its own quality when my kids are playing and they're quiet it is a striking absence of noise i'll have to say it's a striking absence of noise because it's normally not quiet certainly the silence of the servant as he is falsely accused of a crime which was punishable by death is not equal with other silences you don't get accused of something where the punishment is death and you know you didn't do it and you don't say anything Nobody, nobody does that. Okay, well, I'm not going to say anything. I'll just take the punishment. The punishment is death. Not just any death. Death on a Roman cross. The worst kind of death. But he doesn't say anything. It's a deafening silence. There was a striking absence of noise as Jesus refused to respond to the false accusations hurled at him. In Matthew chapter 27 Verse 11 through 14, we find these words. Now, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. So he opened his mouth. He did say, yes, I'm the king. He admitted to that. But when he was accused by the chief priests, so when the accusations came, you've done this wrong and you've done this wrong. And the elders accused him. That's when he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Pilate knew What the penalty of this was. Death. He says, aren't you going to say anything? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. It was a deafening silence in Pilate's ears. Why are you not saying anything? Here's why. Because the servant's silence is further evidence of his willingness to die. As he kept his mouth closed, he was choosing to die. Instead of claiming his innocence, Jesus allowed himself to be treated as a criminal. But Jesus' silence was not a non-answer. Jesus' silence was not a non-answer. By his silence, Jesus was really saying yes. What was he saying yes to? 
He was saying yes to being counted as a criminal. He was saying yes to being hung on a cross. In his silence, Jesus was saying yes to death, to the wrath of God in your place and in my place. Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 says this, And being found in human form, he humbled himself. He wasn't humbled by anyone else. He humbled himself. He chose this by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is a willing lamb. Secondly, we find in verse 8 that Jesus is a sacrificial lamb. Jesus was a sacrificial lamb. Why is he going to die? Well, he is going to die as a sacrifice. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? This question in verse 8 drives verse 8. And it drives us to consider why Jesus was willing to die. What was he trying to accomplish? Knows that Jesus' death was observed by his generation. They saw him die. And as for his generation, as the people around him, this question, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? In other words, who considered, who stopped to think about why he died? They saw him die. They just didn't, didn't stop to think about it. This, this word, taken away, I mentioned earlier, there's some that say, Oh, Jesus didn't really die. This doesn't really mean that Jesus actually died. Well, that word, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. That phrase is used in the Old Testament to refer to death. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 4, we find this. Then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. What is that referring to? If your blood is on your own head by a sword, you died. It's the same word, taken away. This word taken away refers to his death. Not only that, but then the next phrase we find is that he's cut off out of the land of the living. That phrase is also used numerous times in the Old Testament to refer to death. Genesis chapter 9 verse 11. What happens when a flood covers the whole earth? And you're not in the boat. You die. Genesis 9 11. Here's the promise about never again a flood coming. Never again shall all flesh be, and here's the phrase, cut off. By the waters of the flood. That phrase means to die. Again, in Isaiah chapter 38, verse 11, in this same book, Hezekiah the king is recounting this moment in his life when he was sick and near death, but God healed him with a physical sickness and he was going to die a physical death. And he said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. So we have the phrase taken away, we have the phrase cut off, and we have the phrase removed from the land of the living, all three of those phrases in the Old Testament refer to death. Clearly, this passage is saying that Jesus died and his generation saw him die, but they misunderstood his death. Jesus' death was misunderstood by his generation. Here's the question. Who has considered that Jesus has died? Who has stopped to think about it? The word consider means to think deeply about something, to meditate on something. To roll it around in your mind. Who has stopped to really think about? They saw him die, but they didn't stop to think about why this sinless man was not saying anything. Why was he willing to die? And so they missed the meaning. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8 says, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
Jesus' death was observed by his generation. Jesus' death was misunderstood by his generation. But if they had stopped to think about it, if they had thought back to this passage in Isaiah 53, they would have realized that Jesus' death was a substitute for their generation and for ours. He was a sacrificial lamb. We back up to verse 7, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. And then we get to verse 8 and we realize that he was cut off. This lamb died. He was stricken. Why? For the transgression of my people. He was struck down. Why? Because of our sin. Putting his silence and his sacrificial death on the cross together. Hear the words of the Apostle Peter. Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 writes this, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I can't help but as Peter wrote that, he had Isaiah sitting in front of him, or at least had it memorized in his mind. He's saying Jesus did this. They saw him die, but they misunderstood why he died. The reason he died was a substitute sacrifice. I wonder today, you've seen him die in a metaphorical sense. You've read the scripture. You've heard the story. Most of you over and over, many of you since you were just a little child, and you've, you've heard that Jesus died, and if someone came to you and said, did Jesus die on a cross, you would say, yes, he did. You believe that to be a fact of history, and you would be right. But have you considered it? His generation saw it, but they didn't consider it. Because they didn't consider it, they missed the beauty of what was happening. That here was a sacrificial lamb on the cross paying the price for their sins. And when you consider it and you begin to see by God's grace that here is Jesus willingly offering himself as a sacrifice in your place. And you'll be led by God's grace to place your faith in this Jesus, which is the way of salvation. Have you considered this Jesus not quite done with the message today. we got one more verse, but if, if you have not trusted in Christ today, don't even wait to the end of the sermon. Don't even wait to the end of verse 9. Right now, in your heart, ask the Lord to save you. Place your faith in Christ. Consider, say, say God, I never really stopped to think about what Jesus was actually doing when He died on the cross, that He... He willingly gave Himself for me, taking the death that I deserved. Jesus' death would have not been a substitute sacrifice, though, if He had died for His own sin, right? If Jesus had been a sinner and He was dying for His own sin, then His death could not have taken our place in such a way that we would be forgiven through his death. He wouldn't be an acceptable sacrifice to God. In order to take our place, Jesus not only had to be human and die, which he was and did, he also had to be perfect, which he also was. And we see this in verse 9. We learn that Jesus died as an innocent lamb. 
He died as a willing lamb. He died as a sacrificial lamb. And he also died as an innocent lamb. An innocent lamb. I want to start at the end of verse 9 and then work our way back up through the beginning of verse 9. Notice it says that although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Two ways we see that Jesus was innocent. He was outwardly innocent. He did no violence. That's in reference to doing things, killing someone, or whatever kind of act of violence or sin you would do outwardly. He was outwardly innocent. But not only was he outwardly innocent, he was inwardly innocent. There was no deceit in his mouth. Matthew 5.18 says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. He had done no violence refers to outwardly no sin. No deceit came out of his mouth means inwardly he had no sin. His heart was perfectly pure and clean. Remember, we talked about this several weeks ago in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah has that vision of the Lord high and lifted up, and, 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 and train of his robe fills the temple, and he's awestruck by the glory of the Lord on the throne. And, and remember his response, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah looks and says, me and everybody else have unclean lips. And then all of a sudden, here is this one, many chapters later, that doesn't have unclean lips. His lips are perfectly pure. Thus, he is the only one who could be an acceptable sacrifice for us in God's presence. Even verse 11 says, by his knowledge shall the righteous one make my servant, excuse me, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. He is called the righteous one. Innocence is essential if he is going to be an actual substitute sacrifice. We go all the way back to Exodus. And the children of Israel are there in Egypt. Tenth plague, death of the firstborn. And God says, you want to be spared from the death of the firstborn? Here's what I'm going to do. I will allow a substitute. I will allow a lamb to be slaughtered. And I'll see that as taking the place of your firstborn. So he said, I want you to go out to the field and I want you to find the old, beat down, broken up, sickly, nasty wool lamb and I want you to sacrifice that lamb, right? That's not what he said. He said, I want you to go find a young lamb that hadn't had time to get sick, that looks beautiful and perfect, not one with broken bones, you find the best one. You find the innocent-looking one. Not the dirty one. You find the clean one. And that's the one that you sacrifice. God only accepts the innocent in place of the guilty. And so the only way that a man dying on the cross could take your place and my place is if that man was completely, perfectly innocent. If he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, which means there was no deceit, in his heart. And Jesus fits that picture. He is able to be that perfect sacrifice. 
He is this lamb. He is this perfect lamb that you and I need. He is the only one who fits this picture. If you think that you can trust in someone else or something else to take your place, you think that God will accept something that you've done. Stop. Because there's only one thing that God will accept. And that is a perfect sacrifice. A perfect human sacrifice. And that one is Jesus. We find in Revelation chapter 5 this beautiful picture of Jesus on the throne. And he's described as one who looks as a lamb who was slain. One who looks as a lamb who was slain. Can you imagine that? Getting to heaven. And there's the king of glory. And yet we'll be able to tell that he was slain for us. And the only reason we're there is because he has the nail scars in his hands and his feet and the sword spear scar in his side. And we'll know that he is perfect. You don't get to sit on the throne in heaven unless you're perfect. And yet, He was willing to die for us. But as this passage wraps up in verse 9, there's something very interesting. And this is what I want us to to close with. There's something interesting in the way that Isaiah writes this as the Lord inspires him. Verse 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. What in the world is that talking about? They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Let me phrase it this way. While Jesus was outwardly innocent and inwardly innocent, Jesus was also buried dishonorably as though he was not innocent. Jesus was buried, in one sense, dishonorably as though he was not innocent. We see that in the first line of verse 9. Then they made his grave with the wicked. Was Jesus wicked? Should his grave have been made with the wicked? No, he shouldn't have even had a grave. He shouldn't have 